Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. For more information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Heavenly Father, thanks for life that we have in Christ. Thank you for your church. Thank you that it is made up of many members, but it's one body, that we are united under our head, who is Christ, who has saved us, who reigns over us, who is both our Savior and our Lord, our Rescuer and our King. That might we live for him and represent him well as his ambassadors in the city, around this planet, but also as members of his body in the local church. That we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. We are in 1 Timothy as we keep working our way through this book. And so if you'd flip there, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter Five today, and the last several weeks we've been talking about leadership in the local church, and it may seem like a lot of time to spend talking about leadership or the life uh, about life in the church. But it's important that I think that you have a foundation and an understanding of really what the church is supposed to be. Uh, students, I want to encourage you guys. A couple years from now, you're going to go off to college, or you're going to go off to the workforce, and you're going to have to look for a church. And you should be taking notes on this and just be asking, man, Lord, what kind of church should I be looking for? When I go out to this place, I hope that you have a sense of, you know, what does a biblical church look like so that you know exactly what it is you ought to look for when you head off on your own. But for many of us, many Christians don't really have a good understanding of what the church is supposed to be, how the church is supposed to be formed, and how our beliefs are supposed to shape our mission and what it is that we're to be about. And so we're taking some time to dive into this book where uh, that God has given us to kind of guide us in those steps. Now, here's uh, what, what I realize is that many church leaders in a world have swapped biblical death, depth for death, maybe death too, but have swapped biblical depth for uh, entrepreneurship and leadership strategies and business strategies and all kinds of things. And I think that creates uh, kind of a, a marketing concept that maybe loses, uh, creates some cynicism in terms of what we, the way we all think about church. Increasingly, as I talk to people, but especially young people, they're just kind of disorienting uh, about what the church is really even supposed to be. What is it supposed to look like? How is it supposed to function? And what is the heart of the church really? And so there becomes this kind of jadedness that permeates our culture in terms of just understanding what church world really is. And so as, for, as we begin to look at this, what I want us to think about is the, uh, the importance of leadership without going to a certain type of leadership. But when you look at scripture from beginning to end, man, spiritual leadership is essential to the life of the church. And so we do have to have plans and structure and organization and leadership and all these things as part of the church, but we need to make sure that's guided by scriptural principles and that people are really in the focus of it all. And here's what I've discovered over years of ministry. There's kind of two extremes of people. And when you think about this, I want you to think about like which side do you tend to fall on? There's some uh, one group of people that they really want church life to happen organically, naturally, relationally. They kind of, they love spontaneity. They love the idea of things just kind of happening on their own. Now, the problem with that is sometimes that can tend to lend itself towards kind of a, a hyper-spirituality, that it feels more real if it just kind of seems to magically happen, but no one really planned it. And so there becomes this mindset that goes that direction. And it can act as though leadership and organization sometimes don't matter. Now, there's another extreme 
that goes over here that uh, really is, is people that love the planning and organization of the church. Man, they want to they wanna plan it and they want to refine it and they want to hone the refining of the plan of the, you know, and they just want to keep working on the structure and the organization of it and can uh, repeatedly fine tune it. Problem here is the assumption that mere organization is going to bring about personal transformation in people's lives. And so they can get fixated on kind of the nuts and bolts of the life of the church, but they neglect the spiritual reality of needing God to show up. And it can become easy to become all about the program and the events. Now, in reality, both are needed, right? We need structure and organization. We need relationships and we need spiritual depth to take place. And we need those two kind of to be wed together. And what we see in 1 Timothy and really in the New Testament is the church is supposed to be this wonderful connection of relationships and organization with passion, but also with planning, with management and mission, with kind of spiritual fire, but also structural forms. That these two things are always wed in the scriptures. And you see how these come together. And in the church, it's called the body of Christ. So let me give you an image for this when we think about what the body of Christ is supposed to be. Um, Look at this picture back here. I don't know why skeletons just look strange, but uh, when you think about uh, kind of a human body, we talk a lot about the church being the body of Christ. And when you think about the human body, one aspect of the body that's absolutely essential is a bone structure. You need a, a form, you need structure in order to have strength and stability. And bone structure gives you that strength and stability to your body. Now to that, uh, a bone, bones can't do a whole lot on their own though, right? Like bones without muscle just collapse. They, don't, they, don't, they can't lead you anywhere. So we also need a muscle structure. We need muscle to be added to that bone in order to provide strength and movement and motion and be able to propel the body forward. Now, uh, when you look at the picture, you got to wonder about who draws these guys. I mean, can you guys see that? It's like the Terminator eyes with an old man's mouth that needs some dentures. Like, I don't know exactly what they were thinking of there, but I think it's just kind of a funny picture. Uh, and then there's this other one I look. Let me look at the next slide. I don't know if this is the official, like, skinless person pose, but we ha- I saw this one both in the skeleton and in the muscle structure. Look at the next one. Uh, yeah. Like, I don't know if that's just an official pose of, you know, skinless people in the world or uh, skinless people unite or what's happening there. But there's some interesting, uh, I think, aspects of that. But here's what I see in this is every healthy body needs both bones and muscle. You take away either one and the whole thing stops working that it doesn't function and it can't move in the way it ought to be. Uh, have you ever seen a professional athlete break his leg? Now, sadly, most of the college football world is thinking about a fractured hip right now and a dislocated hip from Tua, Alabama's quarterback from yesterday. And what we see is that, I mean, you can have the most muscle structure and you can be as fit as you possibly can. Uh, you could have, you know, 0% body fat and be able to bench press 400 pounds. But if your leg snaps, you're not going anywhere. You need some structure to be wed to that muscle in order to be productive. Uh, Let me look at this next slide. See, this is what a healthy body looks like is when you have bones and muscle working together, you actually create movement. You create direction. You actually go somewhere. You guys didn't know you're getting an anatomy class today, did you? Um, Well, that's all the pictures I got, not going any further than that. Uh, Let me just say this. If a muscle without bone can't do very much and the inverse works the same, Uh, the bone without muscle can't do a whole lot either. And so we're not going anywhere. And in a church, bones are the leadership, the structure, the plans, and the organization of what's happening that gives strength and stability to a church organization. The members are the muscle that propel that organization forward. And so as we think about what this looks like, I want you to know that um, 
that we have invested a lot of energy in the last year building out what I think is the bone structure of the church. So this is why really outside of preaching, I would say my primary goal for this year of where I've invested the most amount of creative energy and, and, and just time has been in creating membership, elders, deacons, a staff guide that provides kind of a robust direction for how we're going to function as a, as a staff and, and a healthy membership process that's focused on discipleship. Because we, we realized that we really needed some bone structure. We needed some strength to what it is that we're doing. So we've got members that are willing to jump in and to dive into this thing. But one of the things we needed kind of in the kind of progression of the life of our church in this, this period of our time was we needed to add some structure to that. And so we've invested a lot of energy in that for a reason. Have you ever seen a teenager that goes through a big growth spurt and all of a sudden they're kind of like long legs and, uh, and, and big kneecaps, yeah, but their muscle hasn't quite filled out on that yet? Uh, I think that's kind of as a church, as we've moved kind of from toddlerhood through elementary age and we're kind of moving into our teenage years as a church, there's a little bit of that happening. Like we're trying to grow the bone structure so that we have more room and strength and stability to grow the muscle around the church and continue to grow the church. So that's where we are, and that's kind of what we've been focusing on. And I want you to know that we're, uh, we're really aware of kind of where that is for us as a, as a body right now. Um, our focus is, is really, though, on people. As much as you want to talk about structure, the heart of a ministry really is about people, right? And so let me ask you this. Uh, how often do you think about your bones? Like only when something breaks or doesn't work, right? So we, we're talking a lot about structure right now because it's the, the kind of season of the life of, of the church that we're in. But man, my hope is in a year or two years that we're not talking a whole lot about structure. The structure is just facilitating ministry and we're, because the ministry and the mission of what we're about is really about people. And so ideally, this isn't something we have to talk about, but our focus is on loving people, caring for people, sharing the gospel with people, training people, releasing people in mission and in ministry. And that's the heartbeat of our church and what we want to be about. We just want to make sure we have a structure that facilitates that well. So I know that's a lot of setup, but let's go 1 Timothy 5. Here's what I want to do today. We're going to see in this is in this chapter, Paul is dealing with various situations in the life of the church, and he's really explaining to Timothy how the church ought to function. And in that, he's going to kind of wed this whole thing of this kind of interplay between relationships and structure and plans in the life of the church. And so we're going to see this kind of play itself out in terms of uh, the New Testament church and what Paul's instructions are. We're going to see that why it's important to have leadership and organization and plans, but how that really facilitates the mission and relational warmth and connection of a family uh, that's called to be ministers. So throughout this whole passage, look at this interplay between kind of relational ministry and planning and ministry that we see. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. I want to break it down. We're going to just read the first two verses, then we'll come around and read a chunk in a minute. But we start off First uh, Timothy 5, verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So it starts off and it's all relational, right? Paul's talking about relationships. And what does he compare the church to? It's a family. He says your relationship should function very much like a family. And so this is how to relate to others in the household of God, as he talks about in 1 Timothy 3, that, that we're, we're a family and we operate and there's house rules to how we function and there's ways in which you need to treat each other really well. And when you think about this, we have God as our father, Jesus as our older brother, and then we got a bunch of crazy family members running around, right? So look down the aisle next to you. See that dude next to you? That's your crazy uncle. 
Like that's the way family works, right? Every, every church has a, fam, has a crazy uncle. Every family has a, has a crazy uncle. And uh, it's the same in church families. And, but relationships are essential to the life of the church. They give, they give meaning to everything we do. They're the, they're the thing that, com, that propel everything about our mission and everything about our, our connection and what it is that we seek to do is about people. And people uh, together uh, operate within the context of relationships. So Timothy's talking, he's talking probably about how to confront an older man here. And he says, do not re- rebuke an older man. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Now he's not minimizing Timothy's responsibility as a leader but he's saying, here's the way your authority ought to be expressed. It ought to be expressed in a family kind of a way, in, in a way in which you would address an older, an older father or, or someone that you care about in that way. So you need to do it with respect and you need to do it in a way that's gonna unify rather than divide people. It's gonna bring them together like a healthy family would. Now think about just having to confront your dad. Like how many of you just go, man, I will really, that'd be a big day on my, a kind of exciting moment in my life to be able to go do that. Like go to dad and say, dad, I think you've blown it here. Uh, like you would have some fear and trepidation. You'd have some timidity. You'd have some humility about which you went about that, right? So I think that's what Paul, Paul is telling Timothy, that we need to operate in the same kind of way. Friends, tone, tone matters a lot in relationships, doesn't it? You ever have someone say really nice words to you in a way that you're like, I don't think they meant that that way. Like that just, you know, you can have that. Sometimes in the, in the working world, you have these things and someone will say like, you did a really good job on that project. And you're like, I think that was a compliment, but I'm really not sure. Tone makes an awful lot of difference. How you approach someone, the way in which you say it. So much of communication is nonverbal. It's about your body language, right? You can say like, dude, I care about you. And you're like, I'm not sure, you know? So I mean, your, your body language shapes it, your tone of voice, your facial expression, all those things matter. And when we interact with one another, and it can be so easy to just get busy and to run past something and not to stop and just go, man, I need to treat this person with respect. I need to treat this person with kindness. I need to speak to them in a way that says, man, we're family here. And so whenever you have a conflict or a problem with someone, what does it mean for us to treat one another like family? You know, it's interesting. He says, you know, to an older woman, treat her like your mother. Now, I know there's no older women here. Uh, There's only younger women in our world because none of us want to be old. But uh, so this may not be that much of a problem. No, biblically, age is a good thing. It's a good thing to grow. It's a sign of wisdom. Gray hair is a sign that you have wisdom to offer the world, even if those gray hairs have been dyed in another color. Right? Like, like even if your gray hairs aren't really gray right now to our, to, to our eye, it still means that you've got wisdom to offer and it's actually a good thing. It says, treat a younger woman like a sister. And he adds a phrase there. He says, in all purity. And, and really there's, a, there's an importance thing here. If he's saying, don't take advantage of someone who's spiritually vulnerable in order to make a move on them. You need to treat them with purity as you would a sister. And so he's saying, uh, treat people with respect and with kindness as though they're family. But what's the big idea? The big idea is that relationships in the family of God matter. And so we need to treat each other really well. They're integral to everything we do as a church. We need to be able to handle people as well as we handle the scriptures. There's a call to care well for those. And so, man, so many people I see in ministry end up on the sidelines because they don't have self-awareness. They don't have the social wherewithal. They don't have emotional health and relational health. And so they end up sidelined in ministry because they can't get along with people. 
They don't know how to function in terms of the difficulty of relationships. Now, relationships are hard, right? I mean, there's an old saying, if you talk to many pastors that every one of them knows, which is ministry would be easy if it weren't for the people, right? Like this church would be really easy if there weren't any people involved. It'd also be really ineffective because the whole point is people. We have to learn though to trust one another and to treat one another with respect as a family. And so Paul's telling Timothy to take kind of a fatherly parent-like approach to others in terms of the church family. Next, let's look, Paul's gonna take, if you go to the next day, he's gonna talk about another group of people that we need to treat, um, treat well and treat with kindness, and that is widows. How do we care for widows in the household of God? And this is one specific area that was very relevant to their day, especially in that world and in that time. Look at me at verse three. It says, honor widows who are truly widows. And this is an interesting passage. We're gonna get in here and y'all gonna kind of look at some of this and be like, man, I don't know where he's going with that one. But uh, Bible's sometimes an interesting document to try to navigate. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let him first let them first learn how to show godliness to their own household, to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She is truly a widow, left all alone. She, I'm sorry, she who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even when she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children and has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work, but refused to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, and manage households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So interesting passage. Let's break it down and kind of see what we can learn here about how we're to care for those who have great needs. Notice three times he says, honor those widows who are truly widows. Uh, three times he's gonna use that phrase, true widows, or widows who are uh, widows uh, in, in reality. We'll, we'll break down and kind of come to that in just a minute. Let's go back to history. In that day, really, females were under the umbrella of a male. So either they were under the umbrella of their, their father or then when they married, they became under the umbrella of their spouse. And uh, whenever, if both father and spouse died, they typically were slid under an umbrella of a family member in order to take care of them because they really didn't have a lot of opportunities for them to be able to provide for themselves, for their needs, for the needs of their families. And so they tended to have to be under someone else's umbrella. And when they had no one, no umbrella under which to live, then they really struggled to function. And so this kind of increasing needs of widows that needed to be financially provided for became a significant issue in that world and in that day. So caring for widows was an enormous undertaking for the church. When you think about this, is when, it, when it says honor widows, honor uh, has to do with respect, but it also primarily here as kind of a financial obligation, that there's a, a financial, when you think of the term we use for honorarium, 
that you're going to give someone an honorarium, meaning out of respect, you're going to give them a stipend of some sort. And that really is what this is talking about, that those who are truly widows are supposed to be given some kind of a stipend to help them provide and live, to really care for their needs. That's interesting. Old Testament and New Testament both deal with this issue of, of widows. In fact, Old Testament says he executes, meaning God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. In the Old Testament law, whenever they were to, to, to go and harvest their fields, they were told to cut the corners off and leave the corners for the widows to go and harvest so they would have enough to provide for themselves. James 1 says, religion, uh, true religion is this, or religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. So this idea of caring for those who can't care for themselves is essential to the life of the church. In fact, what we see in, in life of church is the church doesn't just care for those who are useful to them. The church values everyone because they're made in the image of God. And so, so every person has great value, not just because they allow us to be efficient and execute our plans. We're not Christian, friends, because there's a steeple on a church outside with a cross. We're not Christian because we have services all the time. We're Christian because we're a family that's been brought together by God and we operate that way. Uh, the way we love one another says that we're Christian. So in our day, I, I think this, you might, we might broaden this category to think about this even a little more broadly, to think about single moms and dads, to think about foster, foster kids, to think about adoption, to think about increasingly in our day, we have long-term care of the elderly that's needed. And so I think all things ought to be considered when we think about how the church ought to operate in order to care for those who have needs. But Paul says this about the church. Do you notice as he talks about this, he's talking about the importance of caring for people, right? But he, what's he immediately do? He also immediately begins to give you plans for how it is you're in policies and ways you're supposed to structure. So there's organization to ensure that people are being cared for. And so you see that in terms of the way Paul approaches this. First, he says what? Children are supposed to take care of your parents. Uh, this is an essential approach to the way in which the, this problem is supposed to be solved. It comes right out of the fifth commandment, which says, honor your father and mother. So boys, where are my boys? Look at your mother and tell her you will take care of her someday. This is the way it's supposed to work, right? You're supposed to take care, kids and grandkids are supposed to take care of their parents. It's interesting, there's two motivations for this. One is godliness. It's just the right thing to do. God commands it. It says, honor your parents. And one of the, an extension of honor your parents is man, provide for their needs uh, that they've poured into you. And then the other is gratitude. So it's not just godliness, but also gratitude. There's an interesting phrase it uses in that passage where it says uh, that you should make some return to their parents, meaning make some back payment to your parents. And think about everything your parents have put into you, kids. Uh, young, young adults. Think about everything your parents have put into you. And think about if you had to put a dollar back for everything they did in your life. Think about if you had to give a dollar back for every diaper they changed, for every sandwich they made, for every tear they shed, for every Christmas present your mom wrapped, for every cookie she baked, uh, for, every, uh, for every piece of advice you ignored that she offered you. Uh, for every prayer, for every hug, for every band contest or game she attended. If, if you had to give a dollar in return for every one of those, think how much you'd be just shelling out back to mom. And that's what part of what Paul's saying is think of everything they put into you. Make some payment back to them in their old age that you take care of them. The first place that we're Christians is really in our homes. It's the first place where our faith ought to be shown off is in the way in which we treat one another within our home. And Paul says, in fact, to not do so is to give a black eye to the church. You notice the, the phrase that he uses there, 
when he talks about this, he says to, uh, to, do so, to, to fail to provide for your family is to deny the faith and is act someone who acts worse than an unbeliever. Meaning even an unbeliever out in the world is going to try to take care of their family. Surely we in the church ought to be able to do at least that much. You know, it's fascinating to me also when you think about, when you consider Jesus, think about Jesus at the end of his life. He's on the cross right before everything goes dark. What's the last act that Jesus does? He takes care of mama. He, he looks at John. He looks at his mother Mary and he looks at his best friend John. He says, woman, behold your son. He looks at John and says, son, your mother. He's saying, I'm handing off my responsibility to you, my best friend, to make sure that my mom is taken care of for because Joseph was, had already passed. Friends, call your mama today and just tell her you'll take care of her. Call your parents and say, I got you. If something ever happens, I got you. Because this is what God would have you do. And for those of you who are in the midst of long-term care of your parents, can I just say this? Way to go. Don't give up. I know it can be a long road. And I know from talking to you that sometimes there's sacrifices that you make and there's things that you do. But just know this without a doubt. You're honoring God and you're honoring your parents in your service to them. So keep going. You're doing a good job. So when you think about this group, we, uh, we think about the first group of people that's supposed to take care of the needy within our body is you take care of your own. You take care of your family. You take care of those that you can take care of within that. And then outside of that, there's some that, that begin to talk about in this passage. It talks about a list, right? Which can be kind of a strange thing. And apparently there was a, there was a list of widows that the church was gonna take care of. And so pre-computers and pre-databases, there, there was an organization to the church that somehow they had a list and there may not have been a spreadsheet, but, but they had a list that they kept of the widows that the church was committed to take care of. Now, it's interesting, Paul initially starts off, he says, let me tell you who should not be on the list, um, which can sound a little bit harsh to us. But first he says, the widow that's seeking her own pleasure by pursuing sin, church is not going to take money from those who tithe and say, hey, we wanna enable your life of kind of wanton pleasure by taking the money of the church and, and kind of enabling you to go and do whatever it is you wanna do. Uh, and so he says, don't put those widows on the list. Second, it's interesting, he says, don't put younger women on the list. They should go get married. Now in our day, that sounds really strange, right? It kind of is like, man, I don't know how you just kind of command that. But in that day, part of the heart behind this, I think it's important to understand this is that uh, we know that churches would provide for short-term needs. Like if there was a younger widow who couldn't eat, who had no housing, who had no clothing, clothing, the church would obviously pay for that. What Paul's talking about here is kind of a long-term care that they were enrolled into a system of something that was gonna be cared for long-term. And part of the kind of requirements for that was someone who says, I'm not gonna remarry, I'm gonna stay single all my life and I'm gonna continue to serve the church, church and invest my energy there. And so part of what the, the heart behind this was that it was unlikely that a young widow was gonna, gonna go through this permanent transition to say, I never wanna have a family, I never wanna marry, I just wanna serve the church. And it was unlikely that they were gonna find joy in that. And so the idea is, is really to say, you know, you've got lots of life left to live. You've got lots of drive. You've got lots of energy. You should go use that well. Uh, idle hands make, uh, make for trouble, right? And so he's saying the church doesn't need to fund that. Ideally, because you're young, he says, don't fight your natural inclination for family, for marriage, for sex. Go get married. Enjoy making love to your, to your spouse and have a good life. Have a full, rich life. Don't give yourself fully the church yet. 
And so that's kind of the heart behind what Paul's saying and why he says that. It just strikes us in this day and age as kind of a strange thing. Uh, but he's encouraging them to go and have a fun and active life. Verse 16, there's another category here. He says, some widows actually have a lot of, a lot, a lot of finances at their own disposal. He says, if you're a widow and doesn't have any needs, then you should be able to, you should take care, look for some other widows and you should actually take care of them. So use your surplus to take care of other widows. And that's verse 16. But the church, there's a couple principles that really show up here. One is the church can't meet every need and the church really shouldn't feel obligated to meet every need. But there's a, a general principle that says, hey, if you can take personal responsibility, then you should do that. You should take responsibility as much as possible. But for those who have real needs, there's absolutely no shame in coming and asking for help because the church is here to help meet those needs as much as possible. So back to the list. Who actually gets on the list, right? It's, this is back to that phrase, those who are true widows. When he talks about that, he says, those who are, who are really alone and really in need. The, those who have true needs in the world. And, and he, so he gives you some qualifications. He says they're supposed to be 60 years or more. Uh, they're supposed to be one, uh, one, a one-man woman, meaning uh, more about her character, that she's been faithful. And then there's this kind of list of good deeds that take place there. And it's interesting what it says is, is, is that she's kind of been able to bring up her own children, meaning there's an emotional maturity and perseverance of life. She's shown hospitality. She's washed the feet of the saints. That's humble acts of serving those in the church. She has compassion for the hurting. She says she cares for the afflicted. So those that are going through difficult times, she actually cares for and gives to herself too, and then has devoted herself to every good work. She didn't have to be begged to do something, but she sought out ways to serve. This is kind of the, this woman that's elevated here and it says that for that woman, there ought to be a stipend to meet her needs. And then she continues to be freed up to serve the church, that she has ability to go and do that. It's interesting in this, um, some people feel like this, uh, that there became an office of the widow, similar to an office of elders or deacons, that there actually became a role of widows in the church, that they were funded by the church and they continue to serve the church and serve the ministry of uh, the people of the church, uh, the needs within the church. You know, when you think about this, you can get lost in the details, can't you? You see how you can get lost in all the structure of this? And you just go, man, which group fits here? And how does that fit? And where does that play? And where does it go? And the heart behind this is the church is here to meet needs, but we have to have a plan for how we're going to do that. And Paul gives us a picture of what that looks like. Um, I mean, when you think about godly women in the church, how many stories could you tell? And churches are filled with godly women. There's one, uh, I was thinking about this, and I was thinking of one who would just model this for me. Uh, a church I worked at in Dallas, there's a lady named Caroline. And we paid her about 20, 25 hours to work at the church. I guarantee she did 50, 60 hours a week. And Caroline uh, was just, she was ornery. She had kind of a sarcastic sense of humor, this kind of dry wit. And she and I would kind of go back and forth and, uh, and, and I'd give her a hard time and she'd kind of throw it right back at me. And uh, we had an awful lot of fun, but... Uh, every time I preached, I'd get there at 6.30 in the morning and she'd have a bagel sandwich ready and she just would go by and pick these things up and she continually served the needs of the church. And I remember one time I was talking to her and she was Caroline, go home. It's like, you've been up here all week long. And she literally looked at me and kind of got this wry smile. And she kind of rolled her eyes and she's like, where am I gonna go? It's like, y'all are my family. Am I gonna go home sitting around and watch TV? She's like, this is where I want to be. And she loved serving at the church. And she poured herself out there over and over and was such a blessing to us. But I'll never forget just the, the look in her eye. And she just said, y'all are my family. Where else am I going to go? And she loved to, to be there serving the church. 
Friends, can I just say this? Don't ever underestimate your contribution. Don't ever underestimate the, the, the little things you do that add up to an awful lot for a body, for a family. It's easy to overlook that as a mother or a father or as a spouse. It's easy to overlook it also as a church member that you don't see the impact you're making and you don't realize the contribution that you have. Uh, I think it's important for us to, to acknowledge that and to continue to, to, to run after those things. So do you see, uh, Paul, so Paul says these women are to be honored, they're to be cared for, they're to be provided for. It's just one example of an important need in, in the church in Ephesus. We have different needs. We have different people. We have different situations. But man, we're called to love and to care for one another. That's the heart of the church. It's what we're ultimately about. But do you see how in this passage, relationships and organization work together? And how you have to have both? They're both essential in the life of the church. Let me give you one other, uh, one other picture of this, and I think it's important as we think about this. One of the corrections I think we need to incorporate into the life of the church in America that we oftentimes overlook is, and we've been talking about this some in this passage, is that, that the church is not meant to be pastor-centered, but the church is meant to be member-centered. And the pastor is here to encourage and to equip the ministers and the members of the church to function in a healthy kind of a way. But every person in the church is a member of the body, and every person in the church is a minister in the mission. Every one of us is the church. We function together as the church. We are the body of Christ, and that's how we're meant to, we're, we're meant to operate. And so when, when you think about how we're going to care for each other, the way Paul talks about caring for widows in this passage is it's going to take every one of us. This isn't just a functional decision, though. This is a theologically, biblically driven decision that every one of us matters. And every one of, we, we believe in the priesthood of the believer that every one of us functions as ministers and priests in the world. And we are all ambassadors of Christ. And we all have, have gifts that we've been given to serve the body. And the body grows as each part works and it builds itself up. So there's this kind of theology that drives everything that we do. And if we're gonna care for every person in the church, that means we've got to do it in the parking lot. We, we've got to do it in the grocery store that we're doing it in kids' classrooms. We do it in church service. We do it in Little League. We're caring for one another in the coffee shop, and we're caring for one another in small groups. We're caring for one another in serve teams. We're caring for another in recovery programs. Uh, that, that everything we do is functioning as the life of the church. That whenever we love one another, care for one another, pray for one another, uh, come alongside one another, give to one another, serve one another, we, we are the church at work. We're functioning as God intended us to do, uh, to do this thing called the church. Can I give you one other picture of this? There's a great passage in the, in the Old Testament. If you go to Exodus 18, and you don't have to look there if you don't want to, but let me tell you this is a story, this situation. The people of God have been led out of Egypt, and Moses is beginning to work with this group of people. And as they do, um, he becomes a bottleneck. He becomes a bit of a problem to them. And so uh, there's a passage, great, kind of a funny little passage for me. Uh, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, comes out to him and it says, Jethro brings Moses' wife and his kids out to Moses. And that's like, oh, this is going to be interesting, right? Like anytime, anytime the father-in-law is having to bring the wife to, uh, to, to his son-in-law, there's probably going to be a conversation. But I love how down to earth this is because it says they just begin to talk about how things are going. And there's kind of this scenario where he just says, Moses, how are you doing? And Moses begins to explain to him what's going on. The next day, Jethro is watching what happens. And as they do, there's this line of people that forms in the morning and that forms for Moses. And they're coming and bringing all their needs to Moses. And Moses is sitting there trying to answer all the needs. And Jethro comes to him and says, the thing you're doing is not good. 
Why are you the only one answering these questions? And these people are standing up outside waiting for this day and night, and then you have to send them back home at the end of the day because you cannot meet all their needs. And uh, it says that Moses' father-in-law uh, begins to offer him some advice. And as he does, he, he says these words, you and these people cannot, uh, or, so what you're doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. So he gives them some advice. He says, why don't you get some other people to come and create multiple lines where other people could come and get their needs met. And so let's appoint capable men and empower them to meet all these needs of these people so that at the end of the day, there's not just a long line of people that still don't have their needs met and you have to send them all home and they have to come back again the next day. Moses, he's saying, you've become the bottleneck that's holding this thing back. And then he goes on, he says, Moses, if you do so, that will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this, God, do this and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. All these people go home in peace. You see what was really driving it? It wasn't just a functional thing. Jethro was looking and he said, look, you've got all these needs in this, the people of God and you can't meet them. They're not getting their needs met. And if you don't do something different, you're, every day you're sending people home whose needs are not being met. And that's a problem. He says, Jethro, Jethro says to Moses, you need a different plan in order to meet the needs of the people. And so he says, if you do this, then people will go home and they will actually have peace. So verse 24, uh, 1824, uh, it says, Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. He chose capable men from all Israel and made them leaders of the people, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And they served the judges, served as judges for the people at all times. And um, things began to operate differently. They were able to actually meet the needs of the people. Do you see how that functions in the life of a church? That for the people of God, there were needs within the body that they needed to, a different kind of a structure in order to meet that. But it wasn't merely a functional thing. It was actually an effectiveness thing. They wanted to be able to meet the needs of the people because the people were always the focus. Friends, as we continue to function in the life of our church, this is a part of where we are as a church. We needed structure. We needed bones. We needed strength and stability of something that was going to enable you to truly be members and flex your muscles of ministry to care well for one another. That's the heart of the church, that whenever we function, we are to function as the church. And our primary way of meeting, of caring for you is, is through our small groups. Those are an extension of the life of the church, that when you're in a small group and that group prays for you, that's the church at work. When, when, when that group cares for you, when that group shows up with a meal, when that group prays for you, when that group holds you accountable, when that group opens the Bible and studies with you, that is the church at work, being the church. And so we want to empower that. We've created a care and prayer team to try to make, through, make sure people don't slip through the cracks, but we want to see everyone here cared for. And as we think about the needs of the body, and my heart as a pastor is, I don't want to see anyone whose needs aren't met. But I know when you walk in here on Sunday, I can only have one or two conversations with you guys and the rest of you come in and you wander back out those doors. And if someone else in this room doesn't have a conversation with you, we may never know what's going on in your life. If you're not connected in a group where you're able to share, man, here's where I'm struggling. Here's where my marriage is not doing well. Here's where I'm really, uh, really having a difficult time. And it's gonna be hard for those issues to surface in a way that we as a church family can care for you. So we have to have structures around that. But I want you to know it's not something that's built necessarily just around the pastor. Ministry happens whenever the pastor is not present. 
sometimes I think ministry happens better when the pastor's not present. Any of you agree with that? Get an amen? Like, I know you know exactly what I'm thinking about, but sometimes ministry happens when I'm, not, when I'm not there. The church happens when I'm not there. The church happens when Audra isn't there. The church happens when Chris isn't there. We are the church. I'm just one member. And, and, and I'm on an equal playing field with you guys in terms of my membership in the body of Christ, and we function together. And so when your, mom, when you, when your serve team asks you how you're doing, man, that's the church at work. When, when someone stops you in the hall and just says, how can I pray for you? That's the church at work. When, when uh, someone offers you a cup of coffee, that's the church at work. When a friend texts you and says, man, how's your week going? That's the church at work. All of these things are the church functioning as it's supposed to be. When a greeter smiles at you and says, good morning, that's the church at work. When someone invites you to come serve and be a part of something, that's the church at work. This is the way God designed it and the way he intends for the church to operate. And I just want you to know, you know we, we care about you. And I want to make sure that every need we have within our body is met. But I also know we're going to need to continue to empower you to be the muscles that really drive this thing forward and care for those in our body as we do. Um, Cheryl Lang, would you come up here real quick? Um, I, want to, I want to share with you, we have so many wonderful servants here that minister in so many ways. And I want to bring one of them up with me to kind of close out the sermon and Cheryl is one of our dear servants here. I'll give you that. Um, but as we think about just the needs in our body and what it really looks like, I think, um, you know, there's a, there's a wonderful verse that I love in the New Testament that talks about how um, we comfort others with the comfort which we have received from Christ. And I really see that in Cheryl. And I know Cheryl's been shaped by both her suffering, but also the way God has cared for her through her suffering, and that shaped who she is and really shows up in the way in which she serves and ministers to the body. And so I asked Cheryl if she would come and just share a little bit of her heart for, um, for the church and what the church ought to be, and, and really just for those who are hurting. One of the things I realize is in this season, as we head into the holidays, for a lot of us, uh, this is the highest time of the year, but for many, and there's some heartache for those that have lost loved ones for those whose families have fallen apart, um, for those who uh, can't be with their kids, those who are isolated from family, those who, um, who have had to say goodbye. Uh, there can be some hard times in this season and those who want families and don't have families. And so I asked Cheryl if she would just come and share from her experience kind of some of her heart. Annie told me I could cry. Okay. You know... Um, when I was writing the outline of the table of contents for my autobiography when I was young, I didn't have a chapter that said, you're going to be widowed and have to raise your children more than half your time as a widow. And um, there are all kinds of pain. I'm specifically thinking about those who are singled for various reasons. Okay. The more you know about my life, it really is supernatural. Okay, it's incredible. One of the things I learned when I lost Bill, I didn't know that pain could be so unrelenting and on so many levels. Um, however, you were singled, I know there's so much pain. Um, 
I love what Jeff was talking about. Is sure, we need to have organization, but everything is about relationships. Okay, and I, I'm going to just speak from mine. Uh, it was incredible. People coming. They have. I've been the the um, recipient of incredible generosity. Incredible. People have done things. This week, somebody knew of something, and I was going, okay, God, you're going to have to invest your money this way. And somebody, I just said, ask a question about it, and they chose to step in and make that provision for me. I go, wow. All right, I've been through it so much that what I felt was the love of the Lord. I'm humbled and honored and appreciative, but I felt God loving me. And what the body of Christ has done for me is remind me, God loves me so much. You love me so much. You love me so much. Um, like I say, we've been such recipients of incredible generosity and love. But I will tell you, we also felt abandoned. And this is in grace. This is not pointing any fingers. It's people didn't know what Jeff was saying today. Is yes, doing things for somebody is really great. Giving something to somebody in need is really wonderful, but it's doing it with them and alongside and together that will change their lives. Again, not pointing any fingers. I, okay, I will tell you for those of us who are singled and we have children, we would say, do whatever you want to me. Hurt me as much, but don't do it to my children. And our heart breaks for our children. My children are now all over 24. And they're just beginning to grapple with the loss that they had because they just had to move on. And I will tell you, honestly, where they're hurting the most is nobody stepped in personally, together. There were the men, like what he just said, for somebody to have said, go home and tell your mom, I'm going to take care of you. Or go home and thank your mom today. Or there was no one from my side coming in doing that. And from their side, they were the recipients. But they go, nobody cared enough to love me as a godly man. We need you. They need your families. They need, this time of year is so hard. Give, yes, but bring them into your family. It can't be done by a person or two or three people. The burden is too much. Just exactly what Jeff's saying. And, you know, I just pound all the time about New Testament model church. And that's what, Timothy's talking about, and that's what Jeff's talking about. A New Testament model church, as a family, we carry the responsibility. You've got the small group, uh, redemption groups first, but we need to do it. Okay, please consider it. Family, reaching out, bringing them in. Look at ways that you can meet the needs. One of the great things you know, if it's particularly a single mom, to say, oh, by the way, October 22nd, we're going to come over and we've got our tools. You make the list. 
because, uh, no, I'm talking too long. One of the things that I still do I talk too long too. <laughs> is the asset of people helping. I go, is this, do I want to use that asset up and ask somebody to help with this? Or do I wait until something bigger comes along? That I need something. I can't undo this. I can't do that. I have one son who's got flu and strep right now. And the other one ruptured his Achilles tendon. And then he's going to move to India. Um, so I start, so I'm just saying, be creative, be invasive. Okay, the rest of you love, keep on doing it, keep on doing it. And I'm going to speak to you singled people. You've got to open up and let people know. If you go, oh, sure, fine, great. You can just stick your tongue out and say, it's hard. I just need to be loved. Okay, and so the thing I would say, that's the first thing I would tell you is open up and let people do it. The second thing, and this is whether you're singled or not, you've got to fight to know that God loves you personally. Not John 3.16, all of that, but that he loves you. That is the greatest gift that you can find in, your, in this life. And body, keep it up. Be intentionally invasive in love, especially during this hard season. Invite them over. Don't just invite them for a meal or on special days. Invite them to have fun. I know. Let me pray for you. Let me pray for us. Hey, let me do this first. Okay. Um, just following up on what she said, uh, we want to love you. We want to love the people of our church well. We want to meet, like, I, I want to meet every need that there is out there. We just can't do it. We need all of you. I, just confession. I've had about four instances, I'd say, in the last 12 months where I had a Jethro moment where someone was like, you can't do that. And so that's why we've, we've tried to build the structure. We've tried to put the bones up. We're asking for your help. We want you to be the muscle. You guys are the muscle of this church. Mm-hmm. You're the members that make this happen. You're the only ones that can connect with the people in this room and love them in the kind of way Cheryl's talking about. And so, I mean, we're counting on you. We're asking for your help, and you're doing it. I see it. I see it over and over. I see it happening in small groups. I see it happening on serve teams. I see it happening all over. We just want to invite all of you into that and encourage you. Keep going. Don't give up. Outdo one another in showing honor. Love those around you. Don't ever quit. It's worth investing in. Pray for them. Okay, I will, and you know I'm a touchy person. If you know somebody that's hurting like this and it's appropriate and you feel comfortable, put your arm around them right now, okay? There's some people that are desperately hurt who have been singled or desperately hurting. So if you can, just reach out and put your arm around them. If not, I'll put my arm around you in the spirit, okay? Let's pray together. When I'm up in front of groups, I always read scripture because I can't say John 3, 16, Okay, so Lord, we just come to you. I thank you. You are the Father to the fatherless. You are our God. You are our family, our hope, our victory, our life. But Lord, I want to pray right now for all the hurting, singled parents and people. I'm going to speak this to you from the Lord. And he says to you, my child, fear not for all. I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. 
I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Lord, thank you. This is true. I ask you to actually do this. Speak into those hearts. Let them know this truth. Let every single, single person and parent know this is true. This is who you are. Reveal yourself to them. And Lord, I ask you to use this body to be the functioning right hand that upholds these people on so many levels, just to know they aren't forgotten. Please, Lord, help us to be intentionally invasive in one another's lives. Let us reflect what Jeff what, uh, and Timothy and Paul are talking about here. Please, Lord, reveal yourself and bring yourself glory as we reflect you and we show the world what the body of Christ looks like to hurting people, especially during this hard season. I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you do reveal yourself and you redeem us over and over and over through all the hard things. Glory, and I thank you for Jeff. Thank you so much that we have a shepherd pastor who loves and is trying to build us up to be your body that you love so much here on earth. Glory and honor to you both now and forevermore. Amen. Thank you, friend. Um, man, we love you guys. And the scriptures teach us that they will know us by our love. That outside the walls of the church, they'll know us by our love. But the way in which we love gives testimony to the work of Christ in us.